Hello guys, we're back for another edition of the Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday pod. What a busy week last week was, not just in Podland, but also on our YouTube channel where we streamed a live Q&A with Paul Cook and Danny Cowley and just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you who joined, who watched, who contributed live in the comments section, all of you who provided such great questions uh, that gave us the content to, to put to those two. Many of you have listened back over the weekend, put the podcast up on the feed on Saturday uh, and lots of lovely feedback. So we really appreciate that. It's the first time we tried something like that. Uh, and based on how positively it's been received, we'll probably be looking to do something similar again. This Monday podcast is sponsored by the Skybet EFL Rewards app. And I've been waiting to ask George this all weekend. Did you win £1,000 on this weekend's predictor? I think you would know if I had, sadly. Um, in fact, I am aggressively bad at this game so far. And you are too. I mean, for the second consecutive round of games, we both only got four out of 12 right, me in League One and you in League Two. Not so great. we need to buck our ideas up because it's the 14th of December. I mean, luckily... You know, anybody that listens to the podcasts will know, because um, Ali will tell them fairly often that this season the games are coming thick and fast. Uh, but yeah, we need to, to to sort it out because I quite want that £1,000. I think you said we got a message from somebody who, who went pretty close. We requested an NTT20 winner this weekend. We really want to make sure we have one NTT20 listener, if not us, ourselves, winning £1,000 in the month of December. We did get a message from Ali on the weekend who said he didn't quite bring home the bacon, but he did come joint second in League 2 with 9 out of 12. So I think 10 out of 12 is what you probably need to get to be winning this. All you have to do is enter 12 predictions ahead of each round of fixtures in the league of your choice. And the top of the leaderboard after that game week will win £1,000 in each division. There are three winners each game week, one for each league. So already in the month of December, there have been 10 winners, 10 grand that's been given out already. Not bad at all. 10 grand. In the uh, month leading up to Christmas. So play the predictor this midweek. It is free to play. The app is free to download. You can put yourself in with a chance to win other prizes as well by checking into your team's games and playing the spinner. Uh, the cash rewards for the predictor prize are courtesy of Skybet. And this is for selected fixtures from the 1st of December to the 29th of December. And the predictor is for over 18s only. Further T's and C's do apply. You can find them on the Skybet EFL Rewards app. But please, please, can we have a Not The Top 20 pod listener win this midweek george a busy busy week uh, or a busy weekend oh yes which followed a busy week as ever um we're going to start in the championship as always we are going to touch on to start with and make sure we give credit to the teams who have won both games in the week since we last spoke on a monday <laughs> pod they are norwich they are watford and they are barnsley and I think we start with Norwich because they are our league leaders and they had a hugely entertaining affair up at Ewood Park on the weekend. What did you make of that? What are you making of these teams? It's it's Norwich two years ago again. Like that that Blackburn game was just it it was exactly the kind of games that we saw last season. I know that that Colin and, and Dean Ashton um, on Quest kind of made a point about the one goal victories and how often that happened in the, in the season they got promoted and it's happening again this season. But it's more just the the style and the way that they got the win because, again, there was some irresistible attacking football on show from Norwich in this game. You know, Timu Puki, when he's on this kind of form, is so good. 
Um, he creates so many chances for himself. He's a, his movement in the box is, is brilliant for the second goal, which, you know, on first look, looks just like a lucky deflection. But I'm giving him some credit for being able to kind of get out of the way and divert it, at least goalwards. I'm not saying it was a kind of a brilliant finish into the corner, but I, I'm pretty certain that quite a few um, goal, you know, goal scorers in the division or, or supposed goal scorers wouldn't have the, um, the instinct. predatory instinct to, to do that. But at the same time, they live so dangerously, Norwich. I mean, Blackburn uh, created so many opportunities in the game. They had 20 shots in total. Um, and even though we've, we've seen Norwich in this guise before win the league and continue a run in what looks like a pretty unsustainable means, I, I just I, I can't help thinking that they're going to come unstuck at some point if they continue to do this. I mean, Blackburn are absolutely a, a brilliant attacking side and those um kind of shot stats are, are probably a little bit warped by the fact that in Harvey Elliott and Adam Armstrong they have two players who like to shoot from basically any area of the pitch but at the same time but mate it's not it's not just this game I'm going to pick no, up exactly, off you there because exactly, I, I've, yeah. I've noticed that their underlying numbers defensively Norwich are really poor the sixth highest expected goals against number in the league they've conceded eight and a half fewer than their expected goals number so you know while Tim Krul may account for a couple of those being a great goalkeeper and McGovern made a brilliant save didn't he at nil nil in this game you know I don't think they can continue like that and keep winning games quite so regularly of course it's 10 wins in their last 14 games 33 points in that time. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, except that, of course, as you say, two years ago, they, they won the league and they conceded 57 goals, which is seven more than any other top two automatically promoted team I can see, certainly in the last decade or so. Um, so, it, it, yeah, as you say, it's it's kind of more of the same. It's more of the same concerns, I suppose, that they're just not that good defensively. And that, theoretically, we believe, will come back to bite them at some point, And yet, <laughs> they just keep going. Both games this week, um, they won them with those meaty deflections from Buendia shots from range, didn't they? And, and again, we'd say that's not going to happen every week. And yet you're right to say they do look excellent going forward. So you're also right to say that Rovers are a very good attacking team. But I, I just got the feeling watching this game. It was so entertaining. It was like a basketball game. They were just trading attacks, basically taking it in turns. And the one thing that was obvious was that Rovers could definitely learn from Norwich in terms of that composure in the final third, in terms of the interplay sort of in and around the box and, and just making that extra pass and keeping your head up. We know that Armstrong is an insane goal threat. His his shot volume is unbelievable. And perhaps sometimes that's slightly at the at the sacrifice of, of maybe making a better pass. But I don't think you can really blame him. But it's not just him either. I do feel like they are... You know, they're a very good attacking team, but they, they could definitely learn something from Norwich. Um, I enjoyed watching Josh Martin in this game. He's obviously uh, been getting a fair few minutes recently with injuries to Campwell and others. And yeah, he looks really good. He, he fits the style of attack very, very well. He's He looks a bit like a Campwell, if you know what I mean. Just picks the ball up all across the pitch, drifts into space, plays quick passes. Um, he had a couple of opportunities where I felt like he could have shown a bit more initiative and maybe got a shot off or maybe made a bit more of a swifter pass, but a really nice option for them to have. And another one that, although he didn't come through their academy, they picked up as a very young player off Arsenal. And again, looks like another you know, cheap to free signing that, that will end up um, being a big contributor to their first team and, and who knows beyond that. Pookie 
with his 50th goal in his 100th game for, for Norwich. Absolutely magnificent numbers, those. Uh, and yeah, shout out Harvey Elliott as well. He's he's still 17 and I just can't get away from that. Like if there was a 21-year-old playing like that in this league, we'd be waxing lyrical about him. Just his the way he receives the ball, his, his first touch, but also his, his sort of vision and technique uh, is absolutely fantastic. You know, when it comes to the very, very top level, maybe he lacks the pace of a lot of players at that very top level but jesus with the with the talent that he's showing at the moment not just talent but the actual output that he's showing at the moment and that magnificent solo goal we're, we're looking at another very very special player on loan in the championship from the uh, from the premier league uh, george birmingham nil watford one ryan sent us a sunday scouting report saying this one was a woeful football match um and yeah. and despite two wins in a week for watford I don't think even Watford fans would be expecting to hear a ton of praise being given here. Yeah, I'm really worried about Watford. Um, it was interesting at the top of the show, at the top of this bit, he said it's important that we give due praise to um, the the teams who've won twice this uh, in the week. But I don't think we have to give due praise to Watford because they've been pretty poor. I mean, of course, the 2-0 win against Rotherham um, was kind of a regulation home win in which they, um, you know, were, were good value for it. They didn't necessarily blitz them by any stretch. But this performance um, on the weekend against Birmingham was was incredibly poor. That They didn't have a shot in the match until the 67th minute, playing against a an Ida Karanka side who, you know, whilst they'll defend resolutely, you know, they're, they're not the kind of team who are going to prevent you from getting the board into the final third and into dangerous areas given the the players they have at their disposal it's it's woefully short like it's it's really really poor and there's nothing about their performances either which suggests they have any idea of how they're going to win games of football you know that they, they don't really keep the ball they're not like a possession heavy side who looks to keep the ball either across the back line or in advanced positions they, they don't really press particularly high you know i know that they've won and it's important not to go overboard here, but at the same time, it's a dangerous game looking purely at, at results themselves. And the league table has them in fourth, but there just seems to me that there's kind of no way that they finish in that position unless performances themselves improve. They they, they seem to have a knack at the moment of winning plenty of games that are, are, are at best marginal and arguably games they should be beaten in. The fact they've only lost three games so far this season is extraordinary given the way that they've played. And... You know, there was a time a couple of weeks ago where I thought Dini's arrival into the side was going to spell a change in fortunes. He's obviously got the goal from the penalty spot on Saturday, but the, the, the you know the performances haven't gone upwards alongside. And I think that the game they've got against Brentford on Tuesday night is going to be really interesting because you know they're two teams on similar points tallies with similar aspirations for the season. But in my head, Brentford are, are, are way clear of what Watford are doing so far. So whether or not they'll be able to raise their game to match. What's going to be put in front of them? Uh, we'll see. But I'm, yeah. I mean, of the of the Norwich, Bournemouth, Watford trio, they might only be separated by four points. They might be occupied, occupying three of the four spots at the top of the league. But Watford are, are way off it, in my opinion. Barnsley also won two games this week, and the one on the weekend would have been very sweet for Tykes fans against Sheffield Wednesday. Two one win from behind against Pulis's Wednesday, and that makes it seven wins in twelve now under Val Ishmael. What a wonderful introduction to second tier football for that man and look Sheffield Wednesday on the flip side without a win in eight still haven't picked up a win under Tony Pulis and I just keep coming back to one of the things that we were wondering when he signed which is 
how much value are you getting from being a really good defensive organiser in this league where there seem to be a lot of them? And how much value do you lose, therefore, by not really being able to to attack with any sort of consistency or quality? And uh, so far, you know, far be it to, to pat myself on the back or pat ourselves on the back there. So far, you know, they, they can't seemingly score more than one goal in a game. And most games or many games, they haven't scored at all. And so far, his defensive organisation has only equated to, I think, uh, one or two clean sheets. So... Something needs to improve very, very swiftly for, for Sheffield Wednesday. There's a, there's a lot of teams without many points at the moment. So it's by no means curtains. You know, anyone making big statements about the fact that, you know, Pulis certainly won't be uh, uh, achieving survival with this team would be wrong to say that. But, um, you know, they, they had six points deducted. So they're, they're technically on 15 from 18, minus six. So they're on nine. Um, that's only the, you know, there's only three teams with a worse record than them this season in the league. So plenty of work still to do for Wednesday. But George, what a pleasure it is to watch this Barnsley side, uh, even when they get thrashed <laughs> by Birmingham. It's uh, it's pretty yeah. enjoyable, but it's not. It's just the way that they've developed over the last year that has gen- genuinely been a joy, and one of the great joys of sort of following this division. Uh, a group of young players who were always quite exciting and played with great intensity. And too often last season were calamitous in both boxes. Uh, and in both boxes, they've shown quite a lot of improvement. And it's been really, really fun to watch. Yeah, as you say, I mean, I, I didn't enjoy watching them against Bournemouth a couple of weeks ago. Um, but but when, when they're playing well and they're doing good things, I mean, it feels to me like there is a bit of a a hardening of Barnsley so far under Valerian Ishmael, even though the defensive work against Bournemouth was atrocious. I think games like this are where we've seen Barnsley struggle in the past, whether that was under um, Daniel Stendel, whether it was um, when they were promoted up into the championship the time before that and were rele- relegated immediately. Um, you know, the the recruitment has always been interesting. Um, there's always been an idea there are clever people at the club, but kind of in the same, in the same vein as, as Brentford. I, I wouldn't normally back a Barnsley side away at Sheffield Wednesday, managed by Tony Pulis, to come back and, and, and win that game. They're not a team that you necessarily associate with having those days. So... Maybe the fact that Ishmael is somebody who, you know, himself was a was a no nonsense defender, um, somebody who brings, you know, even though he's not a household name by any stretch in, in the UK, somebody who brings a bit of a a playing aura about him, given where he's worked in the past. Um, it feels like he's instilling something a bit more solid. And I guess maybe, you know, the the Bournemouth aberration could have been a positive in a sense. You know, we've seen them come out since and win both games in the league. Um, having had a good start, maybe it was kind of that reset that showed Ishmael and showed the players, you know, like guys, we're not, you know, we're not, we're not that good yet. You know, we've just come up against one of the best sides in the division and they have totally wiped the floor with us. We have to refocus and and keep working. That might be a a bit of the old amateur psychology um, from us, but it does, I've been almost more impressed by the way they bounced back from a, a kind of an embarrassing show live on Sky um, than I have been by the work they did before that. And it does feel, it feels like an evolution. You know, Gerhard Struber leaving the club at the time was a big concern for those who, who wanted Barnsley to do well. And I'm, and I'm not saying they are better than they were at the back end of last season or by any stretch. Ishmael is a, is a better manager than Struber, but it feels different. It feels, it feels like they are more secure and more solid than what they're doing. At the very least, you have to say, it looks like a very, very good appointment. And that makes it three in a row, you'd say, which is a better success rate than the majority of teams in the Mm. EFL. I do wonder if, you know, just looking at their results, 
um, there might be developing a bit of a theme uh, of and, and therefore maybe a bit of a ceiling for how far they could go from here. I mean, they're 13th at the moment and they've only beaten one of the 10 teams they've played in the top half, uh, losing seven of those games, two draws and one win. Um, whereas below them, they've had an unbelievable time. Um, they've played eight, <laughs> eight teams in the bottom half, won six and drawn two. So potentially we're looking at a team who has taken the leap from being a relegation candidate to a, a, a solid mid-table side. Uh, and the next step will be, well, coping a little bit better with those games against teams like Bournemouth. They've also lost recently to Blackburn, to Brentford, to Cardiff. So again, we're, you know, maybe teams who adjust that little bit uh, better than them in general terms. Uh, so for the rest of the championship, because there's quite a lot to touch on, we're going to return to our lucky dip draft system that we tried out last week when we're trying to move through the games a little bit quicker. This means that if you choose a game, uh, then I can't talk about it. And if I choose a game, then you can't <laughs> talk about it. Um, and ever the gentleman, I will let you choose first. I mean, it's probably the, one of the most difficult ones to draw conclusions from, but I'm going to talk about Reading QPR, um, where it was just a return to... to, to I, I want to come up with a nickname for, for Reading when they are um, just defying uh, the laws of football, because, again, they didn't have a shot on target for basically the whole game against one of the division's most poorest defences. Um, all the chances in the game effectively fell to the home side in QPR. Yeah, Michael Olise comes off the bench, uh, age 19, and scores such a lovely goal from kind of 25 yards. It was a uh, the kind of finish that you don't normally see from from players of that age, because even though he had the time and the space to shoot from distance, rather than trying to absolutely smash it into top corner, he just uses the defenders in front of him as a kind of a shield to the keeper to bend it around them into the far corner. Um, so it was a bit like it looked a bit so like glassy. do I have to do this like it didn't yeah, even look like he really wanted to um, and, and it was the moment of quality that won the game and having someone of, of Olise's quality will do that but it's just it kind of it was the game that went so against how QPR games normally go in a way and, and recently so aligned with what Reading normally do it was almost too perfect to be true but we kind of mentioned it off air just before we started. The, the time is now probably to start getting pretty concerned about QPR because this was you know, this wasn't them at their attacking best, but it was a much improved defensive performance where they've still ended up with no points from the game. And and because of the way that the relegation race or the relegation fight or whatever you want to call it is opening up after Wickham's improved form and and, and after you know Sheffield Wednesday's points deduction being cut and things. Suddenly they're on the cusp of it, and they're only five points clear of 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 safety. And, and with Derby and Forest still, you know, there's evidence with one, maybe not with the other, but we we have to expect they're going to improve at some point. Suddenly QPR's position seems very very poor because they haven't won in their last five. They've lost four of those games, um, and if they're going to lose their kind of attacking vigor, um, then things are going to become very difficult for them. I'm going to talk about the derby that took place Saturday lunchtime. The only game out of the 36 in the EFL this weekend that didn't kick off at 3pm on a Saturday. That was uh, quite a good fun experience with all those games and so many goals in them as well. Um, but Cardiff were beaten 2-0 by their rival Swansea early on Saturday. And I mean, you have to give so much credit to Swansea. I think a lot of the people watching were desperately disappointed with how Cardiff played, given the form that they came into this game uh, with four wins in a row. But I think 
increasingly I'm realizing that's just what Swansea do. Like I think, you know, there are, <laughs> you know, there are, there are some teams who you'll always say like, oh, the opposition just weren't on their game. They just didn't turn up today. And mm. I, and I think there's probably a common thread that the opposition don't let them. And I really think that's the case with Swansea because they do all parts of the game well. You know, we have we, we will be smiling as we say that, you know, we've said a few times their biggest issue being that neither Low or IU are proper, in quotation marks or inverted commas, a proper number nine or a proper goal scorer is just such a great, like, worst problem to have compared to so many other teams because in all facets, I'm just so impressed with Swansea. They're not that flashy. They just do everything pretty well and I think they just threw Cardiff completely off their game. Now, the, the goal early on clearly, you know, just makes such a massive difference and it was horrendous defending from Cardiff for that. Um, but this is a Swansea team that's kept 10 clean sheets in their 18 games. They've taken the lead in 10 games and they've won nine of them. So in only one of the games where they've taken the lead, have they done anything other than just see out a pretty comfortable win? And that's what, what the case was here. You can see how hard it is to break them down uh, in these big games um, where they're, they're expecting a bit more of a battle. You know, they pack the midfield with Grimes and Fulton and Corey Smith, all quite tenacious ball winners and smart players who aren't going to overcommit going forward either. Then obviously they'll pop a number 10 in there for one of them in games where they'll have more of the ball. So it's a system that I think can be tweaked and adapted. The, the most consistent performers are obviously the, the defensive players and the wingbacks who are have been fantastic. Bidwell was getting the praise early in the season, but Connor Roberts' performances have been so, so good. And what an athlete he is, but he mixes the technical ability with it. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of Premier League clubs recognising that now because he's still a young player. He's developed so much over the last few years um, and performances as either a right back in a back four previously or as a wing back in a three, really, really encouraging. Um, but we have to finish on Jamal Lowe because I'm just so pleased for him. Like, can you imagine, put, put, him, put yourself in his shoes. He will be well aware of what both Swansea fans and general observers of the league will have been saying about him that he just, you know, he shouldn't be wearing the number nine because he's not a number nine and he's not a good enough striker to score the goals, to fire a team to automatic promotion or to be a difference maker in a playoff game. And and it must be difficult when you're aware of all those opinions. You can't tell me that wouldn't weigh heavily on you. Um, and to score two in essentially the biggest game of the season for your fans and the second goal basically a repeat of an Adel Tarabt goal that is one of the best championship goals ever scored um, I'm just so pleased for him it must have been an incredible feeling and it was 10 goals 10 games without a goal before that uh, before that game on the weekend and only two in 17 all season so you know by no means would I be saying that those that those opinions are wrong but uh, I thought it was very sweet for Jamal Lowe on the weekend. What a hero he was there. So great win for Swans. And as always, I've just got nothing but positive things to say about them, really, mm. which seems to be a bit of a theme. And there they are in third place on 33 points. Uh, next up for you, George. Next up for me is Luton against Preston. Mm. Um, because one team we do really need to give some credit to is Luton. At times under Nathan Jones this season, we've said that the results they've got haven't necessarily been as emphatic as scorelines have suggested or necessarily deserved, but this was absolutely not the case here against the Preston side who, as we know, have been very, very good on the road this season. This was the first time they hadn't scored away from home. They only had four shots in the game. And when you consider that Luton were tuning up after half an hour, that's a hell of an effort as well. Um, just 
a Luton side who are able to create chances at will. My other concern with them in the past has been their reliance on James Collins for goals. And it might be weird for, <laughs> for me to use a game where Collins has scored a hat-trick to suggest that isn't the case. But it was just heartening to see other players getting into dangerous areas as well, whether it was George Moncur off the left or Harry Connick off the right or Dewsbury Hall and Ray in behind, all of them getting plenty of chances in the game. And... <sighs> You know, Luton certainly at the beginning of the season were running pretty hot. Like it felt like it was it was probably not going to continue, and it hasn't. But in terms of a, a a performance trajectory over the course of the season so far, I think Luton are improving very quickly, and I think Nathan Jones is getting back to the kind of um, attacking football that we that we've become used to seeing him play. Um, their home form is is really impressive. You know, their last two games at home, they've they've put three past Norwich and then three past Preston as well. Um, and if they can make Kenilworth Road a, a a ground that teams don't want to travel to anymore, that's got to be a good thing. And, and you know, having watched all the highlights of the last couple of weeks with fans back in the stadiums, I would say that the the the, the highlights of this game of, of Collins's hat trick felt the most normal. You know that that terrace behind the goal. Um, you know, I'm not sure how much socially distancing there was going on when the goals went in, but uh, but it kind of felt like normal again. And everybody knows it's a horrible, horrible place to go as, as an away fan and the same as an away player as well. There might not be fans there at the moment, but if they can create that kind of atmosphere, the home fans at least, um, then I think that sets Luton in pretty good stead. And they've got Bournemouth coming there next uh, next weekend after a, a long trip to Borough midweek. So it's going to be a tricky week for them. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of, you know, on the Totally Football League show, we do the, our teams of the week and... Even with Bournemouth winning 5-0, I think Luton's performance and the manner of their victory and the way that they won uh, probably would take the prize for me if we were to do that here. I, I fired off the Sunday scouting report tweet yesterday around midday and within one minute we had three in already and they were all about this game. They were all in praise of Nathan Jones and Luton. Uh, one of them from a Preston fan, Ollie, who said it was a masterclass and the first time North End had been outthought and outfought by a similar quality opposition in a long time. Uh, and a couple of Luton fans just buzzing. The best display since returning to the Championship. Uh, and well done, James Collins, who's now scored a hat-trick for Luton in all three EFL leagues, which is such a great record. Someone also said that it was Nathan Jones's 200th game and is a 100th win as Luton manager, which is a sensational record, you have to say. Uh, I'm going to talk about Bournemouth 5, Huddersfield 0. Uh, this one was a bit of a bloodbath, I think it's fair to say. 3-0 after 21 minutes, and it very much looked like, uh, well, it looked like a sort of FA Cup third round game, really, between a championship side and a non-league side, because Huddersfield were all at sea. Uh, and I, to start with, I should I, I want I am gonna give a lot of credit to Bournemouth and individual players who starred, but I was it was interesting to see Carlos Corbran make some pretty sweeping changes to this and a lot of the players that he brought in, fringe players if you will, a lot of a lot of inexperienced players who who, pro, who haven't played a ton of football for Huddersfield and I, I definitely see why you would do that with the fixture list as it is at the moment and a relatively thin squad. I could see why you would try and hold back or rest players to be fresher for the fixtures to come against teams in the bottom half of the table who they really need to make sure that they're beating in order to stay above them currently in 14th Huddersfield. And I suppose when you make those changes and you bring in these players, you can kind of frame it as, go on, show us what you can do against the top, top players in this league and you can win your place back. But I think when you make that many changes actually what happened was he, he pretty much threw these guys to the wolves um it made a bit of a statement of like right i'm not sure we can win this game so i'm gonna make x amount of changes and 
that's what happened. They didn't think they could win this game and they were completely blitzed by Bournemouth. Um, Solanke is just looking so confident in front of goal. And that was the whole thing about Solanke, wasn't it? Last season, as he took longer and longer to score a Premier League goal for Bournemouth with that big price tag hanging over his head and that prolific youth career, always seemed like people wanted to point out that he wasn't doing well, even as such a young player. And we wondered whether playing in the championship he would get his confidence back and by the looks of some of these finishes in the last few weeks that seems to be the case which has to be pretty concerning for everyone else in this division because it's added goal scoring to him being a brilliant all-round striker as well um he got an assist for brooks a hold-up play a little layoff and a spectacular strike from brooks but Solanke is part of a very very fluent uh, Bournemouth front line at the moment the thing I would say is we've seen them thrash Barnsley and thrash Huddersfield in the last few weeks and my conclusion is there's no point trying to play an attacking game against Bournemouth, trying to impose your own high pressing or, you know, possession based game, which Huddersfield and Barnsley both like to do. There's clearly no point because they're so deadly on the counter. They're so deadly when they win the ball in the middle or final third uh, or defensive third and, and play it forward. They're too good. They're too good. So you, you really, I don't think you can risk doing that as Barnsley and Huddersfield have found recently. They are up against Wickham, Luton and Millwall in their next three Bournemouth. So I dare say they'll have to do a lot more uh, unpicking the lock of a deep defence than than what we've seen in these big two wins in the last weekend. But yeah, I wouldn't, I would not overreact as a Huddersfield Town fan. I mean, it's tough to watch your team get absolutely hammered like that. And perhaps, uh, as I've suggested, maybe sort of chucking some of those fringe players into the lion's den but you know i i guess we'll i guess we'll be able to say definitively whether it was worth it uh, after the next few games my main concern would be replacing karoma uh, who's really thrived in a, in a role out on the left where he's been the sort of key attacking threat taking like almost 50 percent of their shots and uh, and scoring a lot of goals as well uh, next up for you in the champ george rotherham two bristol city nil mm. um yeah, massive credit to Rotherham for their performance of the season so far by miles. They were by so far the better team in this game in every single stretch. You know, we know that they press well, which they did superbly here, but they created 22 chances. Um, they were such good value for their win up against a side in Bristol City, you know, who are off the back of a really impressive midweek victory over Blackburn. But Bristol City's... I, I'm... I'm basically baffled by Bristol City because they seem to be the one team in the division who can range between being one of the kind of top six teams in the league to, to genuinely being like the worst team in the league. This isn't the first time you've seen them be taken to the cleaners by a side who you wouldn't think have necessarily much of a an advantage in terms of pure players. I mean, if anything, you'd think that Rotherham... We're at a disadvantage here. Bristol City certainly the favourites coming into the game. Um, but we think back to the to the Reading match at the Medeski a few weeks ago. It was very, very similar. Bristol City just unable to, to basically do anything with the ball, unable to resist the the advances of Rotherham. And there are similarities between Rotherham and Reading as well. They're both sides who, who we've seen this season don't create loads of chances. And yet against Bristol City at home, they found it really, really easy to do so. Um I don't know what you put it down to. I guess there is a very inexperienced um, thread kind of going through the Bristol City starting lineup, whether it's, you know, Zat Viner, um, Semenyo, Backinson. You know, there are young players in there. And then when you add to the fact, you know, you add Dean Holden, a, a, a rookie manager to the list as well. Um, 
but it's just a bit bizarre. I, you know, we obviously do our betting show on Thursdays, and I think Bristol City just decided at the moment you've just got to put a line through for that reason because you have absolutely no idea who's going to turn up. Um, for that reason, it's probably important not to be too downhearted on Bristol City because they put in this performance before against Reading, as I mentioned, and then three days later they went to Loftus Road and beat QPR 2-1. Um, but certainly, you know, the players they've got, when you've got a, a front three of Wells, Martin and Semenyo, and we know that Martin and Wells have linked really well so far this season, um, to to struggle to kind of get the ball to them in dangerous areas. It was, it was Jeju who came off the bench to have Bristol City's only really, really good chance, and that was late on at 2-0, um, is a concern. But let's, you know, let's focus maybe therefore on Rotherham and say, you know, for Paul, for Paul Warren and his side who, who are coming towards the end, well, hopefully it is the end of a, of a difficult run that's, that's seen them slide towards the relegation zone. Um, this is a kind of a performance and a result that, that again, says to other sides coming to Rotherham and hoping for an easy game. I mean, if any if any club goes goes to the New York Stadium in the coming weeks and thinks it's, there should be a team they're just going to roll over, um, absolutely not. They're going to, even in games where they're going to get beaten at home, they're going to make it very, very difficult for the oppo. Good win for Brentford at uh, Nottingham Forest. And they're such an interesting team, to dissect at the moment, Brentford, because they eased into the playoff places with this win. They're on the longest unbeaten run uh, in the championship, 11 games at the moment, which has to be pretty impressive given the schedule. Uh, but of course, they've only won five of those 11 and drawn six of them. So it's not like they're absolutely racking up the points. The point was made that they are four better four points rather better off than they were at this stage last season, which kind of has the the objective of saying, look, they're in a really, really good spot because they ended up as playoff finalists and finishing third last season. Um, so there is still a bit of un- uneasiness around, I think. But I, I think it, a lot of it stems back to what we've spoken about before, that, that Brentford, um, probably more than any other team in the EFL, although there are some some contenders for this, have sort of changed their position in, in the English football um, food chain over the last few years, or really over the last 10 years and the way that they've run the club. But they you know, they are certainly considered one of the, the heavyweights in the championship now in footballing terms, and they were one of the favourites to win the division. So I think that the, the way that you talk about these teams changes. You know, the, the same way that we hold teams that come down from the Premier League to really high standards because of the situation that they're in. Uh, Norwich and Bournemouth and Watford, you know, we don't treat them like a mid-table championship side. We treat them like a team that should be right at the very top. And I think that's kind of part of this Brentford discourse as well and this and this uneasiness um, and the fact that they've changed their style. You know, something that even neutral fans, but certainly Brentford fans enjoyed was the way that they played and how they got the best out of star attacking players. And as you've talked about a lot in the last few weeks, that's not the case anymore. They're, they're not pressing um, to any great extent. Potentially, um, like some other teams, that's a that's a sort of result of of the, how tight their turnaround was, having played in the playoff final um, and just trying to keep people fit and not trying to expend as much energy. So it's working for them defensively. Like as a team out of possession, they're probably the best in the championship. Um, they haven't conceded the fewest goals, but their underlying numbers are the best defensively in the league. Um, but going forward, of course, it doesn't look quite as exciting. And maybe that's another reason why people are just a bit, just not quite buying into it. Um, are they relying on Tony? Yes. Um, are they relying on set players outside of Tony? Yes, probably. Um, we saw that a little bit in this game against Forest. But I do still think they're controlling games, even if they're not like dominating them, if you know what I mean. There aren't that many teams in this league who are dominating games consistently. So... Almost a bit like Swansea, I'd say, Brentford. Like, they're, they're not setting the world alight. They're not 
letting off fireworks like maybe we might have expected you know two teams that are considered to be quite attractive footballing teams but they're good teams they're, they're, they're teams who are doing well and um yeah it's going to be interesting to see whether you know a drop off in conversion rate from tony how much that would affect them and how much some of the other players could come to the fore if it does uh, that leaves i think of the games that we just need to touch off george is that a phrase touch off sounds a bit naughty. No, I don't think so sounds a bit naughty doesn't it anyway um <laughs> I, I i'm not going to go in too deep on forest at the moment i'm going to be keeping a very close eye on them over the next few games because in their last few games they've just had such a horrendous run of fixtures playing all of the current top six um and that's not to say that they've been very impressive but um, in the position they're in, it's the next games against Sheffield Wednesday and Millwall and Birmingham. That's where I'll really be judging them. I'm going to just quickly touch on Derby Stoke. Um, and it, it's nothing that we haven't already spoken about, but it's just the continued renaissance of, of Derby. Or, or should we call it the oh. renaissance? Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> the renaissance. Uh, is there a way to kind of get Rossini into renaissance as well? It should be because Rossignons um just move on <laughs> okay uh but again they would i mean they would just comfortably the better side against stoke you know a stoke team who um are not often going to come off second best and they you know they kept uh stoke at bay very very comfortably the return to form of matt clark being a key um theme to that christian bielik as well sitting in front of the back four had another brilliant game um, they are lacking that little bit of firepower, I think. Um, but Conny Kazim Richards is proving himself to be a popular figure at Derby so far, which is maybe not necessarily what we'd have expected. Um, but they they've improved so so quickly. The, there's the interesting uh, conundrum. The big talking point from the game was Libby Cannon um, going down in the box, and the Derby fans and even kind of Michael O'Neill. Um, screaming like well if it's not a penalty it should be a second yellow and a dive that it's one of the biggest myths in football that um you know at, at risk of going fully kind of um you know old man shouting at the sky thing like football is a contact sport there is such thing as making contact with somebody the player going down looking for a penalty that's the other one that's a myth if they it's not like a case where if they appeal then it's simulation as well because you know you, you can basically get barged over if it's not in the back, if it's side by side, um, and and still go down and not be a penalty, so I think it was probably the right decision. I mean, at the heart of this was why did he blow? Like, why did he stop the game and then give a drop ball? That was kind of the main thrust of it. That is certainly he didn't give uh, a free kick against Whitaker, nor did he no. give a penalty for Whitaker. He just blew his whistle, sort of walked around a bit, and then was like, right, let's play, let's play, drop ball. Yeah, I can't. I can't speak for him uh, in that respect. Um, maybe he just wanted to make sure everyone was okay. Nice, you know, yeah. everyone happy with that decision that I haven't given. Um, there was a weekend, you know, there were a fair few decisions over the weekend that I wasn't too impressed with, um, but that kind of wasn't one of them. Although I didn't know about the drop ball, I should say. But yeah, definitely, if I was a Derby fan, I would now, I think, be saying I want things at the club to stay as they are. Um, certainly, obviously, you know, get a new owner and all that. But in terms of, of off-field, in the dugout, um, I think give the job to Rooney because game on game, they're improving. And I'm pretty sure the results are going to follow quite soon. Borough beat Millwall 3-0, another team that were 3-0 up after 20 minutes. And just Duncan Watmore thriving and everyone in football delighted to see it. Uh, he, what more could you want? He found the perfect club and the perfect manager. And he has been... 
well, they have been rewarded by him refinding that fitness, that form and that talent. Um, and it's made him a big player for them over the last month. Borough have been a bit weird recently, haven't they? They've actually lost quite a lot of games um, and they've won a lot of games and, and this sort of keeping everything quite tight, not scoring many and not conceding many. They've they've slightly left that behind just in the last few weeks. But yeah, I mean, we've spoken about it previously. Warnock just loves a free agent signing and he loves to get the absolute max out of players like this. And it is the most underrated skill that he has and one of the most valuable, you know, the chairman's dream, isn't it? You, you you buy a player on a free, not only is he contributing to the first team almost immediately, but all of a sudden you've got an asset on your hands uh, as long as he signs an extension because it's just a short-term contract. But I don't see why he wouldn't. Um, Warnock did it at Cardiff, didn't he? Brought in Hoylet and Bamba. Uh, among others, and they became part of a, a promotion-winning team just, just 12 or 18 months later. So brilliant performance from Watmore. I'm really enjoying watching Marcus Tavernier at the moment. He's called a lovely goal, and he's just he's just one of those really exciting young attacking players in the league who seems to be able to get a lot of shots off to create to create good situations for his team, either in terms of um, getting to the byline and cutting it back or running through the middle. He's just really tough to stop, so... Mill will struggle with him as they have done with almost everyone recently. Ten games without a win. I feel like that's gone slightly under our radar. Mill will um, on an absolutely horrendous run of form. Uh, yeah, ten without a win, four defeats and six draws. And one of the things that you could kind of count on with them was that they would be resolute. That they probably would they would rarely concede more than one goal, and therefore they were always in in games to a certain extent because they also had such a threat um, often from set pieces but also with Jed Wallace as well being such a good player um, but in recent weeks they've got worse defensively and they've got worse going forward they seem to be lacking a lot of confidence so that's quite concerning uh, and Cov beat Wickham 2-1 two sides in League 1 last season Coventry have played Rotherham and then Wickham and they've won both of those games so that's really strong form they're on now eight games without defeat for Coventry uh, and Kelly gets a lot of credit for the win and for that run of form mm. since he's come back, that that run started. He obviously just brings a, a calmness to proceedings, an organisational skill, dare I say it, and uh, bizarrely in this game as well, two goals. Goals. Uh, which he's basically never done before in his life. One of them when he was on one leg, um, having been injured for five minutes just before half-time, Robbins asked him if he could just stay on and get to half-time and then they'd take him off. And he, f- he found the time to get on the end of an Ostergaard knockdown and uh, score a second before being subbed off. So not sure how it long was, um, he's going to be out for. But It was such a good finish, the first one. Yeah. You could almost see, I mean, it, it, it's poor from Wickham's point of view that he had enough time on the edge of the area to do this. But you could almost see him, you could see the thought process being like, right, okay, yeah, I've got time to shoot here. Okay, I'm going to pick my spot. And I've hit it and it's gone in. It was just like a very, there was nothing instinctive about it at all. It was all so deliberate. Every Coventry set piece at the moment is appointed viewing because you've got Harmer whipping in brilliant deliveries, but Ostergaard, just, he just, the hunger that he has to get his nut on set plays is uh, is quite amazing. Uh, and he was the one to knock it down for Kelly. Harmer finding new ways each week to fulfil our box office nickname for him, whether it's uh, scoring a header from outside the box, whether it's getting booked for silly fouls and getting a little bit leery, whether it's um, scoring long-range goals. Well, this weekend he hit the post from halfway. Um, And if only that had gone in, I honestly think... I'm not sure I would have even done a pod today. I would have just... I would have just <laughs> released a podcast just saying his name a uh, hundred times. That's the end of the uh, chapter. I was going to say quickly, because you'd looked at it harder than me and I just saw it on my TV screen. Why do you look so concerned about me asking a question? Just get over it. Um, 
the the offside, Scott Cashcoat offside, which Gareth Ainsworth said was definitely not offside. I tried to look and it looked pretty marginal to me. What did you think? Yeah, it might have been off. Um, not sure. Not, I, I, I won't be like angry either way because I just don't think you can tell with the camera angles we have. So there you go. Um, Very good answer. We've got a full set of midweek fixtures again. So um, there'll be plenty to talk about next Monday, that's for sure. But um, do remember to check in on the Skybet EFL Rewards app because if you check into your team's game, you get a chance to play the spinner. And if you play the spinner, you could win although I haven't yet, you could win a signed shirt. Seen loads of you guys get uh, winning signed shirts and framing them, putting them up on your wall. It's great to see. You can win free match passes as well, so you can watch your team play. Uh, and, you know, towards the end of the season, when we're allowed back in grounds a little in greater numbers, there'll be tickets up for grabs as well. So do remember to check in on the Skybet EFL Rewards app and, of course, play the predictor as well for your chance to win £1,000 this midweek. Um, we'll be doing a, a live stream as well on our YouTube channel, uh, a sort of watch along. So... Uh, if on Tuesday night you're at home, you've got Gillette on watching the goals roll in, just pop us on on a second screen. Um, we may have a few special guests uh, to be announced on Twitter on Tuesday. I'm really looking forward to that. So do join us because we enjoy doing those uh, live streams. George, in League One, I would say one way to start is to look at teams near the top of the table who picked up big wins. Um, Portsmouth specifically, Peterborough as well, and Charlton. Which of those games do you want to talk about first? I feel like Pompey Ipswich was kind of the headline fixture heading into the weekend um, and plenty of headlines, I guess, on both sides coming out of it. Portsmouth's very positive headlines, Ipswich slightly less so. Yeah, let's go with that. Um, you know, we previewed it on the on the betting show um, and kind of said how to maybe the untrained eye, you look at the odds and think like, why are Portsmouth, um, you know, nearly even money to beat Ipswich away? But, as we've been saying for a while, uh, Ipswich's performances have been so poor and, you know, they, they didn't use the slice of luck they got at home park um, to their advantage because they were, you know, a, as a means to kind of kick on because they were incredibly poor here. Um, Portsmouth were by far the better side. You know, Brian Williams got the two goals, um, the first of which was a beautiful team move. A really nice layoff from John Marquis, John Marquis, which was expertly analysed by Ali Maxwell on EFL on Quest. Um, but but they had other ch- chances to to score in the game. John Marquis hit the bar, Ronan Kurtz hit the bar as well. And I think the key with Portsmouth's kind of good run of form, you know, we've spoken loads about the attacking quartet, and we, I mean, you know, we've given uh, Tom Naylor credit recently as well. But but I think the reason why the start of the season wasn't necessarily a, a continuation of the good form from the back end was was the loss of Christian Burgess and that Burgess ragged back um to was, was so important to Portsmouth's defensive solidity and at the beginning of this season it was initially downing and ragged and and ragged's form suffered massively by not having um Burgess next door to him but now that we've got the Watmore ragged partnership kind of in full flow playing together consistently it's it's completely changing the way that the Portsmouth are able to defend. They're so much more solid. Raggett himself um, has kind of got back to the kind of form we saw from the back end of last season. And it's it's interesting because there are there are similarities to what happened last season where the, the Raggett-Burgess combo took a while to get going again. They had a very poor start to the season. I remember seeing loads of Pompey fans saying we need to find another way to play. But we know that when you give defensive partnerships time, that's when they normally come to the fore so now if Watmore and Raggett can stay fit um, and they play together consistently you know this was another occasion where they were dominant both in the air and on the ground 
Um, I think teams are going to find it very, very hard to break Portsmouth down. And that's definitely what Ipswich found. But they're finding most teams hard to break down at the moment. There's just such little attacking intensity in, in, in what they're doing. Um, for for a, a side that has Ollie Hawkins, Caden Jackson, James Norwood, whether, wherever he is, um, you know, there, there's just not enough going on. Alan Judge is having a poor season. I know the Ipswich fans are very keen on Dobra, the youngster, but from what I've seen, I'm, I'm yet to see much from him. I can see why he's a player that they would like because he offers something maybe a little bit more positive than what we what they're used to seeing, given the stale nature of their of their attacks. But um, I'm not convinced that he's of the necessary um, quality to to really um, change their fortunes. It's it's pretty desperate times at Ipswich at the moment, and this was basically just a regulation two 0 win for the for the better side away from home. And their fans back in the ground for the first time in a long time, seeing absolutely nothing uh, to give them much hope for for a run of better form and. Uh, a lot of boos heard at the end of that game as well, which was a tough one, really, um, to welcome back the fans and for things to be in, in just such a state at the club. Um, the chairman not really helping things recently by kind of just kind of throwing fuel on the fire it, it, with a few statements that he's he's released. And um, yeah, it's a very, very tough uh, time, uh, even with Ipswich still in the playoff places. It, it, it really does feel like deja vu from last season. And I don't really know. I, like sometimes I wonder we're not sort of covering it closely enough, but I honestly don't really know what else to say other than it feels a lot like last season where when they started well this season and last season, it, it didn't look that convincing. Um, and then it's gone, you know, even further the other way. So here we go. Uh, Charlton picked up a big win. 5-2. What a second half performance against AFC Wimbledon. 2-1 down at half time. Um, Boya gave it eight minutes in the second half and then brought on Anike and Johnny Williams and both of them were fabulous uh, after that as they scored four goals without reply to win 5-2 probably the best half of football that Charlton fans will have seen this season from their team and and kind of needed to an extent Charlton had that incredible run didn't they in in October as they flew up the table winning six in a row Um, but since then they'd only won one of five so this was a pretty significant second half and you'd hope that the, the confidence, the attacking brilliance in the second half will sort of rub off and become more of a feature of their play as they, they take on Bristol Rovers and Swindon and Plymouth in their next three. So they will feel like those are three games where they should take the game to the opposition and they should win. Um, that will be their mentality there. Johnny Williams, mm. Johnny Williams reacting to being subbed off as a substitute the week before by basically changing the game here along with an EK. So I think he deserves some credit. And as for Peterborough, you know, I'm not going to take too much away from a 4-0 win, but I think this was about as easy as a win as they'll get all season. Rochdale have obviously got some sort of issue with uh, with playing away at Posh because I don't know if you remember last season, they lost 6-0, Tony scored a hat-trick and yeah. they just gave the ball to Posh you know they put the keeper was passing it to posh players the defenders were passing it passing it to posh players wasn't much better uh, in this game Clark Harris had a hat trick after 23 minutes which I think sums it up but positives for, for Peterborough were uh, a couple of young players Carnu Burrows and Clark all of whom had only started one game each in the league this season they all got given a start Peterborough came into this one on poor form, having slipped off the top, um, and they were all, you know, very positive, full of energy, and you know that'll put a little bit of pressure on some of those guys who who'd established themselves in in the good spell at the start of the season. Uh, and all of those wins were significant, George, because the team at the top, Hull, who'd kind of quietly gone about picking up 
10 wins in their first 15 games. They were tamed by Steve Cotterell's uh, improving shrews. So um, I think I, I think for shrews... Like, <laughs> was that it, deliberate? Yes, that was deliberate. Ah, uh, okay. I can tell. <laughs> Shakespeare. Uh, so, yeah. so far in, in uh, Cotterell's three league games, it's clear that there's been improvement on both ends of the pitch. Like, it's... I wasn't going to say it's not drastic because, of course, they've they've drawn two and won one. Um, but it is actually pretty drastic because of the state they were in previously, um, and and seemingly like most significantly this change in mentality. They were at rock bottom, weren't they? They just couldn't stop conceding late goals. And although they did concede late in their first game under Cottrell to draw uh, against Charlton, it was them who scored late to equalise. Them who were who were still going at the end, you know, heads up and. And, and playing right to the final whistle and in this game they went ahead pretty early against Hull and hold on with uh, held on with relative comfort so a lot of positivity mm. certainly Shrews um, fans they waited long enough for the change to be made and a good start for Cottrell who lest we forget has been a bit of a wizard at this level before um, one man back just, at this yeah, I was just going to say on Shrewsbury uh, kind of in the game itself because they went ahead after 27 minutes a great goal as well from Charlie Daniels um, we then just saw a side who were able to sit in a low block so comfortably. Um, and, you know, they came up against a side in Hull who, at top of the league, who score goals with ease. And the game just developed into Hull just basically having the ball in very undangerous areas. You know, Callum Elder, I think, completed nearly 100 passes in the game. Um, the back four having a lot of the ball, but they didn't have a shot on target in the whole match. So... If you're a Shrewsbury fan who's who's worried about you know relegation and stuff going forward, I think the signs from this game to be able to to go ahead and just keep a, a quality opposition at, at arm's length without the ball um, is really promising stuff. And, and I have a feeling that Shrewsbury being a, a tough nut to crack under Cottrell um, could become a bit of a theme. Well, he's won a glorious promotion from this level before with Bristol City. And segue, George... Who took over from Steve Cottrell at Bristol City in February of 2016? Uh, Lee Johnson. Lee Johnson. And he now manages Sunderland and picked up a glorious 4-0 win uh, against automatic promotion candidates Lincoln City, also known as the best defence in the league previously. But four goals without reply for Sunderland and uh, Streaky Lee gets on the board. Streaky Lee going to get off with a... A very early winning streak. Yeah, really impressive. I mean, there's just nothing really you can say about this one apart from it being just to complete um, exactly what Sunderland fans wanted to see. Yeah. In fact, they, they they had all of the ball for the game. They dominated every aspect. There was no suggestion whatsoever after going 1-0 up that they were going to sit on their lead, um, which is what they've wanted to see. Um, we, you know, we saw it sometimes towards the back end of last season, you know, Parkey went on a run where they were beating teams four or five. But as you mentioned, this is a way of Lincoln side who defensively are so good uh, and so many clubs have, have kind of struggled to deal with their intensity, but it, it was the other way around. And for for Jack Diamond to kind of be at the centre of everything here, um, you know, winning the penalty, getting getting on the score sheet as well with his third goal, with Aidan McGeady back in the side and, and providing the bullets. Um, I don't know if, if Lee Johnson regrets taking his, his seat in the in the dugout for the Wigan game at the Stadium of Light on, on opening day. Um, but if we're going to forget that, which we won't, but this would be you know the perfect way to announce himself to Sunderland fans. And you know we're seeing immediately on social media and stuff all the excitement that, that had sapped and had waned from Sunderland is, is certainly back in now. And, and if, if Johnson can take this game and this performance as a, as a kind of a catalyst to bigger and better things, 
it's not going to take long until they are right back up at the top of the table and um and eyeing up a return to the championship massive win great performance yeah like watching them on fast forward um was what i said on the highlight show on saturday <laughs> night and that was definitely the case too often in the last two and a half years they've been plodding along um sort of just horrendous attacking style that so uninspiring and not particularly effective either so um you know albeit they won't always get games where they have so many opportunities in transition but they certainly made the most of them and i'm not going to do this every week because i really like lee johnson and i really like listening to him talk but because i like listening to him talk i do often hear him say things and i just think i've i've got to say this on the pod the first sentence of his post-match interview on the weekend when he was asked what he thought about the game, the first thing he said was, and you can see this on their Twitter page, Sunderland's Twitter page, he said, we haven't had an awful lot of time in terms of pitch side and session-wise to get the protocol in. And I just thought, <laughs> protocol's not... Wow. That is not a word you hear many managers use in the first sentence of it. <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. He's, uh, you know, it, it worked even without much session time. Um, Bristol Rovers beat Argyle 3-0 now. What a brilliant sort of 10 days it's been uh, for Paul Tisdale. A little a little bit like Cottrell at Shrewsbury. I think the fan base, uh, the early signs have been very, very good. Um, I mean, performance levels wise, like it's not as it's not enough yet for me to get like really excited. Um, Bristol Rovers in 15th place, but certainly, you know, a very welcome back to back wins in the league against Wimbledon and against Bristol uh, against Argyle because prior to that they'd been on such a miserable run but you know did the damage early here from set plays um their keeper van stappershoff who i mean i'm just going to be honest like is a bit of a comedy figure amongst the fan base for for having committed some absolute howlers um whenever he's played obviously yakula is their number one keeper and you know Unfortunately for Van Stappershoff, Jakolar is a brilliant shot stopper. And Van Stappershoff, whose name I can't stop saying, but probably I'm not saying well, <laughs> has, has had some absolute howlers, especially against Fleetwood not too long ago. So it's only right to point out that I think he made seven or eight saves in this game. Um, and, you know, Argyle, this game was not as... it did. It's not at all what the scoreline looked, put it this way. Um, just some really terrible set play, set piece defending from Argyle. Um, and basically ever since you talked about Ryan Lowe on the podcast uh, in the context in the context of Sheffield Wednesday they've lost uh, five games in a row in the league and yeah. conceded I think 80 no 15 goals in that time so that's pretty grim I wonder if Ryan listened and it went to his head <laughs> unlikely possibly <laughs> yeah I'm sort of I, I, I really I don't want to go too far here other than to say you know the main negative is just how bad they are defensively We've touched on in the past that his, even at his best, his teams have never been that impressive defensively and whether that might you know, hold him back a little bit uh, in terms of getting jobs higher up in the division. It hadn't really mattered uh, in terms of results, clearly, because he's won back-to-back promotions from League Two. Um, but it is an issue here. They've conceded 30 goals in 16 games. And so you know, it's clear that because of this, just constant concession of goals... They're losing confidence as a team and therefore getting worse going forward. I still don't think that Plymouth will get sucked into a, a relegation battle. I don't think. But any much more of this and I would start to get pretty worried. Um, mm. So there you go. And Wigan Accrington, George. The, uh, the, you know, this went exactly as we thought. Wigan, <laughs> Wigan, 
Wigan racing into a 3-0 lead and then just a complete chaos in the second half, but managing to emerge 4-3 winners. Uh, Back-to-back wins for this Wigan side. They just, you know, they may only have 14 points from 16 games, but there's there's a lot to admire about the way that they are battling. Yeah, I mean, it's it was pretty incredible to see them do this. Um, but off the bat, I mean, this is back-to-back wins now for Liam Richardson and, and, and his side against two teams who... Sunderland weren't in any any form whatsoever, but against Accrington, um, you know, for reasons you outlined on the betting show, one of the one of the form teams in the whole division. So, I mean, it, it wasn't easy. I think even when they went three 0 up, we knew that that wasn't going to be the end of this one because um, you know the way the Wigan season has gone so far this season, because they are a side who seem to give away plenty of chances even when playing well, um, and. They were somewhat fortunate as well. I mean, they were very fortunate, to be honest, at 3-2 not to give away a penalty. I, the, I cannot the funny, work out the funny thing is we, not a pen. We pointed out the penalty that wasn't given for Accrington, and it was only really watching back again this morning that I was like, the penalty that Wigan got was yeah. definitely foul committed outside the box. So, yeah, yeah they, they did get some fortune, but... I mean, I, I must say, when it... here. I think we should do the analysis in this game because I know it costs you in your pocket. Um, a bit of pocket talk. Mm. Um, no, I mean, I'm obviously joking. I know that you're not like that, but it's it it was it was a you know Wigan are aside in the same way that they that they conceded 16 shots to their one when they beat Sunderland at the Stadium of Light. They are going to be a side who I'm pretty confident, even if they get relegated. So even if they get if they stay up, if they were to stay up, say by on goal difference, just one place outside the relegation zone, I'd still be fairly confident they're probably going to finish bottom of most underlying metric tables. Like they are going to have to find ways to win games when they have not created the best chances and they have had to, you know, they've conceded plenty of them as well. And they've done that twice in a week. Um, and, you know, you don't have to do it that many times. You don't have to defy the the stats that many times to get you into that position. So uh, a huge win for them. And I guess with every match that kind of goes forward that follows this trend, the more they'll probably believe that, that that it's something they can continue to do. Um, they're off the bottom again now. They're just two points off Rochdale in 20th and Oxford in 20th too. Um, Big game against Rochdale and on, a massive uh, game against Rochdale on Tuesday. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's going to be really fascinating to see how that one plays out. Uh, yeah, you have to be disappointed with Accrington whether you backed them or not in this one because seven wins in ten previously uh, and then defeat against the the league's bottom side. And the funny thing was, as you kind of said, when it got back to 3-2, there was still half an hour to go. And there was a period where Wigan players looked like they were like running in treacle. They looked like as immobile as a Subutio player. And Accrington were like wave after wave of pressure. But they really lacked composure. I've never seen a team that had so much time still to play and were on top to such an extent, takes so many like wild long shots. One of them went in from Nottingham. But, I mean, obviously I had one keen eye on this comeback and it was it was very frustrating to watch. So a bit of a shame for a team who, you know, who had put together a runner form where they'd been, well, very composed and when they'd really put together a, a impressive performances. But uh, not on the weekend. Well done, Wigan. Let's hope that we get some takeover news this week. That is dragging on. Um, long enough, I think it's fair to say. Um, uh, there were other wins for Fleetwood. Won uh, their winners against Swindon. Uh, Doncaster beat Gillingham. That was an impressive win after Jill's good form. Uh, and Crew as well with a late, 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 late winner against Northampton. Um, both, mm. both that Donny uh, Gillingham win and the Crew Northampton win was a proper like 
75% possession, yeah. like really knocking on the door and finally getting the, the win at the very end. So well done to those teams. Um, really good victories. In League Two, another busy weekend. What a, what a great division it's been this season. What a pleasure to cover. Um, we'll start with the, the bad news, I suppose, uh, depending on your viewpoint, which is that we lost two managers to sackings this weekend. One of them not surprising at all, I think it's fair to say. One of them quite surprising. So let's let's get into this. Stuart McCall uh, sacked by Bradford. So there were new there was news a few weeks ago, which I think I had I had talked about him getting a new contract just a few weeks ago, and I should say that what McCall and his uh, assistant got a few weeks ago was an extension of their contract, which had been up at the end of this season. They got it extended to the end of next season. So I don't know whether that is a new contract or just an extension. The wording is, is kind of difficult here, but I think I think it would be wrong to say, "Oh my God, you're sacking him just weeks after you like publicly supported him with a new contract." But Georgia, I mean, he's out for the third time. I think sacked as Bradford City manager. Uh, in this case, it was a defeat to Oldham Athletic that appeared to be the final straw. Yeah. Um... I mean, th- this isn't a surprise, is it? I mean, you mentioned there why possibly it would be, but their their run of form has been very poor. And, and unlike other sides towards the bottom end of the table, you look at the players they've got, there's no way they should be down there. I, I think it's a really appealing job for someone to come into because we've said it so many times, it's a very hard division to get relegated from and it, it doesn't take a, a great run of form in order to get them out of it. But you know, whether it's Novak and Donaldson up front, although, you know, with Donaldson there is, um, he isn't as young as he used to be. Um, Aren't or, we all? Or nobody is. Or, you know, Paulie O'Connor, Ben Richards-Everton. You know, there are plenty of players here who who are solid League Two players um, and it just felt like things were kind of collapsing around McCall. Um, and, you know, it, it's that they're a club who basically need to change something and, whether it's McCall's fault or not, he's a thing that has to make way because they can't change the players, they can't change the fans, they can't change those in the boardroom, um, who I think a few Bradford fans would say are the issue as well. But when you look at the players he's got at his disposal, you have to say that McCall is underperforming. Um, there are so many managers around. I mean, the thing with, with Bradford that's kind of novel to other League Two sides is even though they are you know, a point off relegation to the National League, Rightly or wrongly, and, and maybe it is totally correct that there seems to be a feeling that there's still a big draw. Like I've seen, um, I've seen a few managers mentioned. I mean, I've seen the Cowleys mentioned a few times, which I just, I just would be very surprised if they were interested. Although, I mean, locally it kind of works for them in Lincoln, but if they were interested in, in dropping back down so close to the National League, I've seen Mike Flynn um, mentioned, who you know is currently managing the side. Who were top of the of League Two and, and who's been linked to Championship jobs before? Like I'm not sure if they can necessarily attract that that caliber of manager thereafter. I mean, Phil Parkinson is is the obvious one that's going to be linked to the club given his history there, um, and would probably be a shrewd appointment. But whether or not they can get him, I, I'm not necessarily sure. The, the two names at the top of the list are the bookies at the moment, Jonathan Woodgate, which would be a, a massive risk um, because we didn't see a great deal at Middlesbrough to suggest that he was up to the task and I tweeted my support for Sol Campbell when he was 25 to one this morning. He's now even money favorite. Um, I hope that wasn't on the back of me saying anything because I, I have absolutely no idea whether or not he's, um, he's even linked, but he seems to me someone who is very similar to Bradford in terms of, of what they've, you know, they're, they're, they're big names. They are, they are clubs and a manager 
who are household Premier League history behind them, who have aspirations to get back to where they once were. And um, it, it's kind of amazed me to see just how much of a negative reaction there's been around the prospect of Sol Campbell taking over there. The amount of people saying 22.5% win rate um, is obviously ridiculous because you look at the job he did at Macclesfield, which was genuinely incredible. Um, you look at the job that he did at South End, and given that not much has changed at South End, I think it's probably fair to say that South End last season were probably the worst team in the EFL, even though they were playing in League One, um, because not a great deal has changed there. And he managed to pick up four wins and five draws, I think, from 16 odd games. Like it's it, it, by no means a great um, performance, but he, Sol Campbell, deserves to be at a club where things going on off the pitch aren't going to take two, you know, it's League Two during a pandemic, it's going to be difficult, but he needs a job somewhere like Bradford where he's got the players at his disposal, where, where he, the expectation should be more than just keeping a side up, where if he manages that, he's not going to have to leave in the summer owed money, you know, it's it, and it just seems like a good fit to me. But um, from what I'm seeing, a few Bradford fans don't agree. I'm always interested to know what the sort of person who likes to bring up manager win percentage and it's hard for me to put myself in those shoes because it would never cross my mind to do that. Um, what do they think is a good... Like, what's the threshold where bad win percentage becomes good win percentage? You know, obviously, this is all contextless anyway. But, like, you know... It's just, it's just it's, the idea. Do you think yeah. 34% is a good win percentage? Because that was Nigel Clough's win percentage at Burton Albion, generally considered to be one of the best jobs anyone's done in the EFL. Like yeah. Sean Dyche's is 37%. It doesn't sound high, does it? But similar story. Ainsworth at Wickham, um, 39%. Do people think that's good or bad? Like That's what I don't understand about this win percentage stuff. And Apart, and especially... Even aside from the fact that clearly it just removes any context whatsoever. Yeah. You know, no, I mean, it, it is... I, I, you know, I can understand there'll be people who look at Sol Campbell's Wikipedia page, don't read the blurb and don't realise... You know, that well, Maxfield Town don't exist anymore. You know, like don't really understand the context around it. But um, it, it it's just a bit sad to see to see kind of public opinion still so vehemently against Sol Campbell, despite him taking on two jobs that no one else wanted, and in you know, <laughs> a very unglamorous clubs in the EFL and, and making such a good fist of it. I think there's a lot of confirmation bias at play there. Uh, people just sort of believing what they'd like to believe. Um... I saw a um, I saw a tweet I think from the summer that was like, "Why the hell does Saul Campbell not get a massive job? Given that he's got a twenty two point five percent success rate at Maxfield and Southend, and it had like ten thousand retweets and likes." Good tweet. And it's just like you know, come on, lads. I wouldn't mind getting numbers like that on the not the top twenty account. Maybe I should change. Let's try that. Maybe I should change my tact from tweeting <laughs> from tweeting thing like quite niche things like. Pompey are threatening to turn into the severe of the Papa John's. Maybe I should start just going for the more numbers uh, content. Let me know, guys. Maybe I could I could turn into one of those sort of content machines. And um, Barrow, mm-hmm. Barrow uh, Parting Company or Sacking, I should say, David Dunn, it's one of those where like my initial instinct was like, oh, that's a bit harsh, I think. Um, it's, it's, it's very difficult looking at the results to maintain that view. Um, they started the season... Obviously, their first for such a long time in the EFL, with uh, without a win in eight. Uh, then they beat Mansfield and Bradford over the space of four days, and it sort of felt like they were getting the results their performances w- had deserved. Um, 
and they haven't won since then for seven, including five defeats. Um, in the last four, they've lost to Oldham, Morecambe, Salford and Crawley, and they're conceding a lot of goals. So it, it is quite an interesting one because, I mean, objective had to be stay in the division. Um, you know, that has to be the primary objective for, for all teams coming up from the National League, maybe bar a team like Salford, who clearly have the resource, resources to, to buy a League Two squad, which Barrow and Harrogate clearly don't have. Um, in this year of all years um, and the numbers were, were pretty good to start with and I think the eye test was quite good as well like mm. teams were coming away from Barrow I mean being like wow okay that's actually a pretty good football team like a good side <laughs> and we've really struggled to beat them as the case was a couple of times or draw with them as was the case with Colu, Orient, Bolton and Walsall they got draws against all of them um, now Paul Riley I've mentioned a few times he covers League 2 very, very closely, both in terms of the data and watching the video as well. And he's he's always had some interesting things to say about Barrow, which is that they the numbers rate them pretty highly. The numbers think that they should be a lot higher in the table. And therefore, we might think that their performances have been much, much better than the results. But what he's always pointed out is that they've consistently let themselves down with like horrendous errors at the back whether it's trying to pass out from the back and giving the ball away in and around their own box and conceding goals, whether it's goalkeeper mistakes, whether it's defenders slipping over on the ball. Like, they, you know, they're the sort of team that for 88 of 90 minutes would just be on the same level as their opposition, but then they'd have two minutes of complete calamities and, you know, in the the way that their opposition wouldn't have. So that's kind of been an issue. And I guess it's up to you how much you put that down to David Dunn um, whether he just he just seemingly couldn't sort that out. Um, you know, we normally think that massive mistakes like that probably shouldn't happen every week, probably wouldn't happen every week, but he couldn't seem to stop that from happening every week. So um, I felt a bit bad for them on the weekend because they were two on up at Crawley um, before a red card and a pen and, and then Max Waters doing what, what Max Waters does. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see who, who Barrow can, can tempt into this position and uh, whether that person can make sure they do achieve their objective of, of survival because them and Bradford are just outside the relegation places at the moment on goal difference. Uh, Stevenage on 13 as well and Southend who got their second win of the season on nine. So all to play for down at the bottom. Uh, George, also in League Two, well, should we talk about Waters? Because it's getting ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous. Right foot, right foot, left foot this weekend, wasn't it? <laughs> I don't think there's ever been a player in the EFL who's who the mere fact of them scoring a goal means we both get straight on to WhatsApp and message the other one like so excitedly. You, you know when things happen in the world that you find so mental but then you find them even more crazy because no one's why why is why aren't people talking about this more? Mm. That's what I've got at the moment with Max Waters. Like why <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast and you know about Max Waters. Why are you not like... Why isn't it dominating your life? Time? Yeah, it's because, like, who is this guy? He signed two months and th- four <laughs> days ago now, and he's scored 15 goals already for them. He's only made he's only made uh, 12... Uh, literally, he made 11 starts Yeah, in all, in all competitions for Crawley, and he scores with every part of his body. <laughs> really? I, I'm so confused. Well, as in right foot, left foot, head. Uh, the, I'm, the, I'm, the three key parts of the body. In fairness, whilst I'm talking about this, why haven't we tried to sort out an interview with, with Max Waters? That should be on the agenda, shouldn't it? Yes. Okay. We'll try and sort that out. But, I mean, I don't want uh, to interrupt your thread. He uh... Maybe maybe we can play a new um, foot golf with Max Waters where it's right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. Ah, I think I'd back myself. Um, I would. 
my left foot's terrible. Um, but yeah, no, he's, I, I'm, yeah, it's, it's going to be, he's one of the stories I'm most intrigued because when this happens, like they get, they get bought, don't they? Like someone yeah. in the, some possibly even in the championship, someone's just going to buy him because, but because it's such a small sample size, there is a genuine possibility that in two years time, Max Waters could either be playing in the Premier League or in non-league. <laughs> I mean, his... and we have no idea. Yeah. We have no idea. This isn't it's Adam great. Armstrong scoring 12 goals from 12 expected goals in 12 games. This is a player scoring 12 league goals from like seven expected. Uh, so the yeah, what is what, what is his um yeah it's about that it's about that I looked on the it? weekend yeah okay. um I just liked that he didn't take the penalty even though he'd already scored I know. two but then they <laughs> but then they made sure that he got his hat trick with a uh, his teammate squaring it to him back uh, at the end of the game yeah I like that too also ridiculous in League Two uh, Exeter winning five nil against Tranmere they've scored eighteen goals in four league games George eighteen goals in four league games that's four and a half average per game and it's more goals in their last four league games than 20 of the other 71 EFL teams have managed in the whole season so far so more than a quarter of EFL teams have scored fewer goals since the start of the season as Exeter have in their last four games they're just like relentless like the greatest Bowman Ryan Bowman with back-to-back home league hat-tricks having never scored a hat-trick in his life it's like they've been injected with just pure confidence and speed and joy it's great i'm loving mm. it and it's also completely aligned with the day i tweeted asking people <laughs> to send me their ideas uh asking me to uh, asking them rather to show me if their club was selling snoods because i decided that this winter was going to be a snood winter and i wanted to support an efl club's uh club shop and i bought an extra city supporters trust snood and that was the day before the first of these uh, four games. So there you I'm go. not saying that's why, but I'm not not saying that's why. You can make your own mind up. Mm. Uh, but it's pretty exciting, isn't it? Um, and them and Carlisle, who won 4-0 on the weekend, something like 28 shots to one against Stevenage. We've just got quite a lot of teams that are um, providing us quite a lot of joy and excitement at the moment in League Two. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the impressive thing, especially with Exeter for me, is, is just that it's different from last season and nothing much else have changed you know we talk about the evolution of Barnsley from manager to manager this is the evolution of, of Matt Taylor and Exeter himself because he hasn't changed that the personnel there have been a couple of additions but nothing massive the you know the, the retention of Randall Williams was, was as big as any signing they've made but it's in my head he was a pragmatic manager a def, kind of defense first manager and what we're seeing now is is a quick um you know he's adapting very quickly to the level, adapting to the players that he's got, adapting to the form of his players, and he's happy to kind of cut loose and, and enable them to to attack as as they wish. Um, it's yeah, it's incredibly exciting, and with them, with Cheltenham, with Newport, loads of really exciting teams, exciting players who, who are doing things the way that we like to. And you know you've probably got to add Carlisle and Forest Green to that list. That top five is is exciting. I'm looking forward to the the scramble towards the top. Forest Green very much there or thereabouts they beat Cambridge 2-0 Cambridge the early pace setters now slipping all the way out of the bottom of the playoffs they're in ninth now uh, on 25 from 16 Forest Green doing what they've done pretty consistently all season which is go into half time level and then just turn it on in the second half um, mm. we, we, we kind of 
We thought we'd hit on something a little bit on Quest on Saturday, talking about why do Norwich always score so many late goals to win games and why do Crew often score many late goals to win games <laughs> and why do Forest Green seemingly score a lot of late goals to win games. And one of the clear threads between these sides is they, they are possession-heavy teams. They are like process-based in their sort of attacking approach and they just keep going and keep going. But more so than teams like Blackburn, who you'd also consider to be a good attacking side, they're just very composed. Like They're very yeah. comfortable and calm in the final third all the way to the end. Uh, and that reflects very well on their managers as well to, to sort of well have them keeping their composure. So in the second half of games, I mean, in the second half table, if you just took that, Forest Green, 17 games, 10 wins, 7 draws, no defeats. They've scored 18 and conceded 5 in the second half of games. So they did the same thing to Cambridge and it was a deserved win uh, for them. I have to issue an official statement of apology to um, Josh Coyote and Carlisle United and their fans. Yes, you do actually. I thought um, that. Well, this is a weird one, isn't it? So Coyote <laughs> has an excellent long throw. And by the way, I love teams that score loads from long throws. I want to make that very clear. And we were we were bigging up Carlisle on Quest and we spoke and, and we were like, the problem is we've done this a lot recently and we need to find something different to say. Uh, we can't just go like, oh, great, great intensity to their style of play, not conceding many goals, taking a load of shots and scoring loads. And then someone was like, um, let's make a bit of a gag because I think it should have been a foul throw. And obviously there's a load of foul throws all the time in the EFL. So it, yeah. it felt like a bit of a sort of tongue-in-cheek thing to point out that before Riley's brilliant volley for the fourth goal, Coyote stepped on the line, like both his feet were on the line. And it mm -hmm. it looks like a foul throw, but that's not the rule. You know, you're trying to myth bust earlier about when is a dive, not a dive and that sort of thing. Crazy. And I think not many people know, well, at least I certainly didn't, that you can have both your feet on the line. So long as your heels are touching the line, you can take your throw in from there. So what I'm wondering is, why don't all players take their throws from more or less on the pitch? Like... I reckon some refs don't even know this, you know, mate. I yeah, reckon, I agree. I reckon if in Sunday League I started taking my throw-ins with my heels on the on the front edge of the by on the touchline, I reckon yeah. I'd be blown up foul throws all over the gap. So it's a funny one, but I just need to apologise because I I made a mistake there, and I was uh well I was made to I was made to learn pretty quickly by the Carlisle you made fans. Made to look a fool. Thankfully, most of them realised that I was sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek anyway, so it wasn't that serious. But there were <laughs> there were a few people that called for my sacking, uh, told Quest to get some new pundits, which I... Was actually? Yeah, I thought that was quite quite hurtful, to be honest. But, no way. Hey, let's not worry too much about it. Well, I'm on next weekend, so they've got their wish. <laughs> um, George, do you want to talk about Leighton Orient beating Newport or Walsall beating Bolton? I guess Walsall beating Bolton um, because it's been a big turnaround for Walsall. Um, we spoke about how we were quite worried for Daryl Clark about a week ago. Um, but a quick look at kind of the data and the XG stuff suggested that Walsall were, were maybe the run of form wasn't really deserved. They're unbeaten in their last four. Um, wins have been hard to come by, but they've gone to Tranmere and beaten them 3-1. They've come from behind to beat Bolton 2-1. Uh, so I think they just deserve some credit. And I think for, for Daryl Clark, it's been really important for him because... You know, he's, he's a manager who we've got a lot of time for. Um, you, you, of course, interviewed him a couple of years ago. Uh, he's been on the pod a couple of times. But I think when you've when you've come off the back of, of a difficult job, you go into Warsaw and, and things don't go right. Um, it's hard to kind of see where the next job comes from, I guess, in terms of, of being a number one. Um, so this is a big run of form for them. Um, and I'm really happy to see it. And 
as as is always the case in League Two, it doesn't take much to to get you back up the league. And I'm sure that they'll now have their their sights firmly set on um, on trying to break into the playoffs because they're only three points off it. Yeah, Leighton Orient have proved that, haven't they? They've absolutely mm. flown into the playoff picture and they did so with a big statement on the weekend. Big statement for two reasons. Um, they beat the league leaders Newport, the first top team, you'd say, that they've beaten uh, this season. And they did it deservingly as well. Al- although they went 1-0 down early in the game, from that point on, they were they were easily the better side and they did enough to, to get two goals, to get ahead, potentially a little fortunate with a disallowed goal for Newport at the end. Maybe two all would have been a fair result, but um, you know they're playing with a lot of confidence in the moment, and it's the confidence that comes with having someone like Danny Johnson and some of the other attacking players who are just seemingly scoring at such a high rate. Um, Toby McEnough has been one of the great joys of the EFL this season, not just because I think he's one of the better pundits out there, but also he's just he's he's so good. Like this is a guy who's basically had like two football careers in one football career, I mean, who played a full season in the second tier for Wimbledon in 2001-2002 and who is still going, um, playing in a different position to where he played the majority of his career and, like, completely thriving. There's a great clip that Orient put out on social media of him, like, way outpacing another player to chase down a, a, a long goal kick from Vigaru into the corner and then winning a free kick to release some pressure on the team. And it was just, it summed it up really. It's just absolutely inspiring, I think. Should be inspiring for his teammates and anyone, uh, any sort of League One, League Two footballer, just uh, a great example of how you can extend your career, even if you need to change position, even if you need to change your game. Like those sorts of things can be done. And yeah, very, very inspiring for Joby. Uh, Morecambe are inspiring me as well, George. They, they, they got their seventh win of the season which matches what they got in the whole of last season in whatever it was, 33 games or so. Um, but I think final word should go to South End because they got their second win of the season. Uh, their fans were there to see it. It was a great goal from Olajinka on loan from Arsenal. They had two guys in Hart and Akinola who signed weeks ago but who couldn't be registered because they were on, under transfer embargo. That embargo has been lifted. And I honestly think they can be better now. I don't mm. think that South End will be the disastrous team that we've seen for over a year now from from here on out. I'm not saying for sure that I think they will suddenly fly up the league table, but just in terms of not being that absolute disaster team, I think this is the start of something for, for South End. So, I mean, fingers crossed because I really, really hope for the fans' sake that that is the case. Um, George, we've got full midweek fixtures and the only thing that you need to do between now and kickoff on Tuesday night is make sure you get the predictor in. Which I will definitely do. Why? Because you have a chance for free to win £1,000. You'd be absolutely mad not to. Download the Skybet EFL Rewards app. On the left-hand side, go to predictor. You have to predict all of the games from one league. And in each league, so it's not just overall, in each league you get a grand if you predict the most games right. Home win, away win or draw it's so easy to download so easy to do fun to play as well uh, and totally free and one thousand pounds for the person who predicts the most correctly yeah for each division as well so three grand up for grabs really one for each league so there's a very very good chance for you here if you think that you know your stuff george and i are off uh, both of us have got four out of 12 the last two 
weeks. So this needs to be better for us. But there are still mm-hmm. uh, a number of chances to win in December. That's how long this competition runs for. The cash rewards are courtesy of Skybet. Selected fixtures from the 1st of December until the 29th. You have to be 18 and over uh, to play the predictor. Further T's and C's do apply. But we would absolutely love someone listening to this. <laughs> to pick up some extra Christmas cash. So please do play the Skybet EFL Rewards Predictor this midweek. Join us on a live stream on our YouTube channel on Tuesday from circa 7.30 to circa 9.30. It'd be great to have you there. Uh, And as always, thanks for your support. Thanks for listening to this pod. And we'll talk again in the second half of the week.